we're back in Romans. You guys remember Romans? <laughs> we were we were in Romans before Easter, and uh, we took a little break. We're not going to take any more breaks now for a while. It's going to be Romans Arama um, for for the next several months, and uh, that's my commitment to you. We're gonna we're gonna be in Romans now and and really keep going. But um, we're in uh, the 14th message this morning. Um, and the title is A Case Study in Faith. And I want to just review a little bit because you may have, you may have forgotten kind of where we were. And, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time in review, but I want to touch on some high points. Back in, in chapter one, verses 16 through 17, Paul stated the theme. He states the theme there, the, the central thesis, I think, of the entire letter to the believers in Rome where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Did he mention faith there? Faith. Faith. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then the latter part of chapter 1 and on through chapter 3, Paul addresses uh, three kinds of people, and we put some labels on them. Um, in chapter 1, the godless, the latter part of chapter 1, we just referred to them as the godless. And then uh, and then in chapter 2, uh, the critical moralist, kind of the, the finger pointer, the, the guy that uh, believes that God grades on a curve, and so if I'm more moral than you, then I must be have more favor with God. And then the religionist, and, and you say, why, why, why use the term religionist versus religious? Um, and, and, and it's because of this that the religionists trust in their religion, uh, for their, uh, standing before God, for being in right relationship. So if I, if I adhere to the religion, if I do the religious things, um, and then I'll be okay. But one by one, Paul demonstrates that there is no one who is righteous, neither the godless, nor the moralist, nor the religionist neither Jews nor Gentiles, that all are under sin, that all face the judgment of God, that simple personal faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ is the only means, the only means by which anyone can be made righteous. In fact, let me let me just read, and I hope you'll open a Bible this morning, whether an electronic one or a paper one. There, there are Bibles in the aisles. Uh, the passage we're going to be in this morning, I would I would be comforted if your face was in the book this morning um, because uh, because of that. But let me read uh, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 19, kind of where Paul arrives at, at, when he comes to the end of the, the first three chapters. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, speaking of the law of Moses, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Let me just pause there for a moment. So he, he talked about a couple different kinds of law. He talked about the law of Moses. He, he, he's, he's talked about the law of conscience. Uh, he's talked about religious law. And, and all of that, Paul says, brings us into accountability um, so that we're all accountable before God. For Verse 24, by works of the law, 
And, and again, Paul would probably say, name your law. Name your law code. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So whether it's the, the law of Moses or the law of conscience or the law of your particular religion, and, and religions are good at collecting laws, whatever law you want to ascribe to, the end result is going to be that it's going to, going to have two effects. It's going to show you that you don't measure up, first of all, and then it's going to judge you. You're going to become aware of your sin, and then you're going to be condemned by it. In verse 21, he goes on, but now, this is one of the wonderful but nows in the Bible, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is, the the Old Testament was always pointing toward it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a big word for sacrifice, uh, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. That is, he exercised his, uh, he, he poured out his justice on Jesus and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So that's kind of where where he arrives. And then in, in chapter 4, 1 through 8, which we examined just before Easter, Paul demonstrated there that uh, through the experience of Abraham, who was the patriarch, the father of the Hebrew people, that salvation is by grace alone, the grace of God, unmerited favor of God, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law, apart from works, apart from religion. And that's where... We arrive today. So we're in uh, Romans 4. We're in 9 through 25. It's a little bit longer passage than normal, but it's all one big thought, and so we have to kind of take it in as a chunk. And uh, so would you stand with me, as is our custom, and let's read this together. <clears throat> is this blessing, then, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, 
not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, Paul, Paul begins here with a question. Um, is righteousness by faith, apart from works, available to both Jews and Gentiles? It's an important question. Verse 9, is this blessing done only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Where we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. When we were considering chapter 4, 1 through 8, just before Easter, I pointed out that there's an important word that appears ten times in chapter 4, and when a, a word starts showing up frequently, you, you need to pay attention to it. And I want to remind you of that word this morning. The word is logizomai. Would you say that with me? Logizomai. It's translated from Greek with the English word counted, or some of your translations will have the word credited. Logizomai comes to us from the world of accounting. It means to count or credit as something. To credit something is to confer a status on it that that didn't exist before. And I gave you this example that let's say you're renting a home with a rent-to-own option. You make your monthly rent payments, but along the way you go, you know, really would like to buy this apartment or buy this house. And when you make that decision, then those rent payments are now counted as mortgage payments. Um, a new status is given to those payments. Uh, the money is no longer going down the, the, the rent rat hole, you know, and, and, and now it's being applied and you're building equity and you're building uh, value. A new status. The, once they were rent payments, now they're mortgage payments. So when in verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was counted logizomai to him as righteousness. He's saying that Abraham's faith was given a new status, a new effect. It was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. What does this mean? What it meant for Abraham was that God treated Abraham as if he was living a righteous life. His faith itself was not righteousness. That's important to understand. His faith itself was not righteousness. But God conferred upon his faith. God, because God had the authority to do so. 
He said, Abraham, I'm going to take, I'm going to take what you're offering by faith and I'm going to count it as if it were righteousness. And now there's a new status. Abraham was declared righteous. So to have righteousness credited to your account is to receive a righteousness that is not, does not inherently belong to you. Um, it was while we were still sinners, Paul will say Nick, in the next chapter, that Christ died for us. While we were weak and helpless, while we, even while we were hostile, we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. It's not that we are righteous, it's that he confers a righteousness on us by faith that is not inherently ours. It's inherently his. But he imparts it to us. He, he clothes us in it. So again, Paul asks rhetorically, is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the, uh, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And Paul answers his own rhetorical question with another question. How was faith counted to Abraham as righteousness? He says, we need to examine that. How, how did that take place? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You come to church, they talk about circumcision. Isn't that fun? There's three words here I think that matter in regard to Paul's short answer here. And the first is sequence, the sequence. But Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised and not after. Um, and that matters. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after? It was not after, but before. God's call to Abraham, as described in Genesis 12, and it's enlarged upon in Genesis 13 and 15. God promised Abram a land and descendants as numerous as the stars in the night sky. Anybody been in the desert at night on a clear, on a clear night? No artificial light to interfere. And there's just thousands, aren't there, of stars. You go, how, how, where were all those? Where have all those been all my life? And, and, and it's just amazing. And so God said to Abraham, Abraham, look up in the night sky. Can you count all those? Nah. Well, Abraham, or Abram, this is, this is an example of how many descendants you're going to have. And another time he, he took him and he said, Abraham, look at the, the particles of sand. And there's a lot of sand where Abraham lived. And he says, Abraham, can you count all those particles of sand? No. No, God, I can't. Well, your, your descendants are going to be like that, innumerable, uncountable, unfathomable in number. God promised him that he would make from him a great nation. He promised that through one of those descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Genesis fifteen six, we read that Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And this is kind of the, the classic statement of faith for, that kind of overarches the whole Bible in a sense. Genesis fifteen six, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
And it isn't until chapter 17 now then that, that, so that's chapter 15. It isn't until chapter 17 that Abraham was circumcised. And, and when we read that, we go, it's only, you know, 10 minutes because we can read two chapters. But according to Jewish reckoning, in fact, there was an interval of at least 20 years or more, depending on who's doing the counting, between the moment in which God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness and the occasion of his circumcision. And Genesis 12 tells us, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. This is Genesis 12. As Abraham went as the Lord told him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, which was his hometown, Ur of the Chaldees. And then in Genesis 17, Abraham is now 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That's a fun thing to do at 99. So, so the sequence is there. It was Abraham's faith came before his circumcision, not after. And, 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 and Paul makes note of that. And then there's the, the sense of it. What, what's the sense of what took place? And we see there that circumcision was a, given as a seal of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith before he was circumcised. So notice verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In Genesis 17 now, God said to Abraham, he's Abraham now, not Abram, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Abraham said, gee, thanks. See, but Paul says that circumcision is both a sign and a seal, a sign and a seal. Now let's begin with circumcision as a sign of the the covenant between God and the Hebrew people. As a sign, it was an outward, in a sense, physical characteristic that identified the Hebrews as the people of God, the people of the covenant. And it pointed beyond the individual, it pointed beyond the nation, collectively, to the God who had called them into existence as a people and as a nation. As a seal, circumcision was not a prerequisite to Abram being counted righteous. Instead, it was the authenticating and validating indicator of the righteousness by faith, Paul says, that God had already granted to Abraham on the basis of his faith before he was circumcised. A seal is always always points beyond itself. And it's always, it always has the sense of a guarantee, of a promise. And then there's the significance of this, that Abraham became the father of all who walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. Listen to Romans 4, 11 to 12. The purpose 
was to make him, that is Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. All the Gentiles. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So since Abraham was righteous in God's sight before he was circumcised, it follows that he's the father of all who believe without being circumcised. And also all who are circumcised and who also walk by faith in God as Abraham did before he was circumcised. So it puts circumcision in perspective. He says, look, this is not about circumcision. Circumcision is a sign. It's a seal. But it speaks of something else. It speaks of faith. And so it's substance over symbol. And when we get, we get the symbol, we give too much prominence to the symbol over the substance, we're getting the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? It isn't enough to be physically descended from Abraham or merely to have been circumcised as every Jewish male was on the eighth day of his life. It's, it's a genuine faith in God, that transfer of trust that we've been talking about from, from my goodness, my morality, my religiousness, my feigned goodness, transfer of trust from all of that to God through Christ that God credits as righteousness. Having established then that righteousness comes through faith and not circumcision, in verses 13 to 17, Paul then wants his readers to understand that righteousness comes through faith, not law. Okay? Through faith, not circumcision, and now through faith, not law. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, if somebody could do something about the law, move that out of the way as an obstacle, there would be no more transgression. So three thoughts here. First of all, the the promise to Abraham and his descendants didn't come through the law, first because the law had not yet been given. (laughs) The law was given through Moses, not through Abraham. Uh, And Moses wasn't even born until at least 500 years after Abraham walked the earth. Secondly, the promise of righteousness by grace through faith didn't come through the law because the law can't make that promise. Uh, The law can never make a promise. The law can only do two things. It it brings the knowledge of sin. It makes you aware that you're a a loser. That's the first thing it does. And the second thing law does is it condemns you. It it, it brings the wrath of God. Romans 3.20 again, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15 here, For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no Transgression, and ironically, the very thing that the Jews were counting on to make them acceptable to God turned out to bring 
to, to do nothing more than to bring light to their sinfulness and condemn them. It's a bad thing when the thing you're counting on to save your life fails you. It's like a, a leaky life ring, right? Third, if, if the promise of righteousness by faith depended on keeping the law, then Paul says the principle of faith would be invalidated. Faith would be rendered useless and God's promise would count for nothing and then we'd be back to the law again. So he says righteousness depends on faith and then he goes on, he says, and it rests on grace, the grace of God, the, the unmerited favor of God. And then he says, good news, it's guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring both Jews and Gentiles, those who are descendants by faith. Verse 16 is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So you can be a law-keeping Jew who's, Believing in God by faith, you can be a, a non-law-keeping Gentile who's believing in God by faith. All are children of Abraham. Faith is the response. We've been talking about this, that faith is, faith is a receptor. It's kind of the hand of the heart that reaches out and, and, and with, with palm upturned and receives from God what God is offering. It's not an actor, it's a receiver. So faith is the response that makes the promise effective because faith is this. It's, it's reaching out in helplessness, in total dependence on God. It says, it says God, I got nothing. <laughs> I think I got, sometimes I think I got a lot. But the reality is I got nothing. And, and, and if you're Grace is not towards me. If, if your love, if you have not called me, if you've not set your affections on me, if you've not received me, I'm, I'm toast. The promise remains an act of grace. If, if the promise was contingent on human effort or human achievement, we would never be confident that we had ever done enough to please God and merit his favor. It'd always be We'd always be wondering, have I done enough? Am I enough? In fact, we have a little book. I'm sure it's back there somewhere that, that we give away. We've been giving it away for years called How Good is Good Enough? And it's a great little book. And, and it's free. We'll give one to you. Um, it's even hardback. So it's cool. It's not, not a cheesy thing like churches give away. You know, it's, it's actually a hardback little book. And you should read it. All of you should read it. It's a great book. But what a terrible thing to always wonder if I'm, if I've done enough. And the answer is Christ is enough. What, what Christ did is enough. And that, then John said, these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name, that you may know, that you may know, not wonder, not hope against hope, but but no. And Paul goes on, verse 17, says, The God of Abraham gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That, that statement is one you should, we all should memorize. That fact about God. When God first called him, his name was Abram. 
Okay? You're going, oh, sometimes Jim's calling him Abram. Other times he calls him Abraham. What's going on? When God first called him, his name was Abram, the father. It means the father of many. So you can imagine Abram going from, you know, the land of Haran to the land of promise that God was going to give to him and his descendants. And he arrives there and the people say, what's your name? And he says, I am the father of many. Oh, cool. So how many? Well, none actually. That would have been his answer. In Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, God appeared to Abraham and Abram and promised him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be, you shall be, the father of a multitude of nations. Not just the father of many, but the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's the, that's the meaning of the name Abraham. I guess that's why we call him Father Abraham, right? He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And you can hear Abram going, yeah, I'm 99 years old. Okay. Okay. And here's where I think Abraham really shows us what it means to believe in God. Which is, first of all, to know that reality is greater than our feelings or perceptions. And here I'm assuming that God is the reality. Reality is greater than our feelings or perceptions. What, what, what Scripture considers as faith is defined by the confidence that Abraham, of Abraham that the promise of God was inviolable. That when God made a promise, you could take it to the bank. That you could stake your life on it. You could trust your eternal destiny on it. You can stake your life on it. This becomes the theme of this final paragraph. So verse 18 says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In hope and against hope. I just find that a fascinating phrase. From a human standpoint, there there was no hope that he would have descendants, right? I mean, 99 years old, childless. God had promised him descendants, but he had none. Took a look at his own body and said, I'm as good as dead. Looked at his wife, Sarah, 10 years younger, said she is too. Viagra hadn't been invented yet. Humanly speaking, this is hopeless. Ain't nothing going on here. And yet with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible. How many, how many people in the Bible is that said, that, that, that spoken to? Think of Mary. Nothing shall be impossible with God. Mary's gone to really, what you're talking about it is crazy. How's that going to happen? Now here's how it's going to happen. And just remember, nothing is impossible with God. So Abraham persisted 
in believing what God said. His hope was a, a deep inner confidence that, that God was absolutely true to his word. Robert Mounts, a theologian, wrote this in his commentary on Romans. He said, faith is unreasonable only within a restricted worldview that denies God the right to intervene. His intervention is highly rational from the biblical perspective, which not only allows him to intervene, but actually expects him to show concern for those he has created in his own image. Paul told the church in Corinth, we live by faith and not by sight. Faith isn't opposed to reason. Sometimes uh, It is sometimes opposed to feelings and appearances. And that's why Abraham didn't proceed. He didn't base his faith on what he perceived. In fact, faith kind of begins with a, a the, the death of self-confidence, doesn't it? When you realize that, that beyond your ability, you got nothing more and it isn't enough, and faith is going on something despite our weakness, despite our feelings, despite our perceptions. And that's why to believe in God is also to focus on the truth about God. And when we start focusing on the truth of God, things begin to change in our whole perspective. Despite the apparent impossibility of the promises being kept, Abraham focused on what he understood about God. He didn't just like you, you don't. He didn't have a full understanding of God. But in verse 17, Abraham understood him to be the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He understood that God who, who spoke all of creation into existence, creating every, everything out of nothing, the God who created every living being could also give life to the dead. And in his view, he and Sarah were as good as dead. And revitalizing what wasn't working at all anymore in their reproductive systems was right up God's alley. You know, I was thinking about this statement regarding God, that he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist this week, because on my Facebook feed... Uh, there came a, a prayer request from a family I do not know for their little boy. He was just an infant boy who has um, terrible complications. And they're, they're saying he's going to be brain dead and he may die within the week. If, and if he survives, he'll never be able to speak. He'll never really be able to think. And when I read it, I went, I mean, have you ever had that experience where you read something and you go, I, I can't even pray for that. I don't even know how to pray for that because that's just impossible. And I read, and I read this and I'm reflecting on this and I'm thinking, simple thing for God to speak his brain back into existence, to, 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 to give life to, the, to what is dead, to speak into existence things that don't exist. God can do that with a word. Verses 20 to 21 tell us that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And again, to possess faith is not to check your brain at the door or to simply react to your circumstances in your own strength. If It is instead a determined insistence on acting on what God has revealed of himself, his power, his promises, his purposes. 
And then to believe in God is to take him at his word. Simply to take him at his word. Abraham believed that God had power to do what he promised. So believing God is not only thinking about God, but it's also trusting his word. What he said is true, and we can act on it, and we can be confident in it. Indeed, it's taking God at his word even when there is nothing else to go on. When, when our feelings, when popular opinion, popular philosophy, common sense seem to contradict his promise. It's, it's, it's to look at what God has said and let that define reality for you. Not easy, but unless we're focusing on God's word and understanding who God is and, and what he's capable of and what his purposes are, uh, we, we'll never dial into that. We've got to be in his word for any of that to even begin to take shape in our lives. So Abraham shows us what it means to believe in God, but I think he also shows us what a real life of faith looks like. Um, and first of all, it's not a perfect life. It's not a perfect life. Paul says that Abraham didn't waver. And I think he's speaking of something that was, that, that underlied all of Abraham's responses. Because in chapter 15, Abraham is questioning God's promise, right? You ever done that? You ever questioned God's promise? Really, God? Really? In chapter 12, he lied about who Sarah was to save his own skin, put her in terrible danger. Genesis 16, he collaborated with Sarah to try to bring about God's promise their own way. Have a child by Abraham sleeping with Sarah's servant, Hagar. Failure of faith that had far-reaching consequences, even down to today, because Abraham's son with Hagar, Ishmael, became the father of the Arab nations. We're still at war with Israel. So it's not a perfect life, but it's a growing life. It's a growing life. Abraham's obedience was not perfect. His trust was fluctuating, but his faith was never extinguished. I think that's the underlying factor. Through it all, through, through all of his own flaws, all of his own failings, he held on to his fundamental belief in God's promises. And as he did so, Paul tells us in verses 20 to 21, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And isn't that the life of faith? I mean, it's saying, God, I, I, don't, under, I don't understand and in some ways, I don't need to understand. I'd kind of like to understand. But here I am, God, and I'm available. I'm 99 years old. Look at me. What you going to do? I'm available. You've been telling me I'm going to have a child. 99, God. Did I say I'm 99? I'm 99, God. So the life of faith isn't a life of perfection. It's the life that clings on to what God has said he will do and that, and that sees the struggles and joys and failures as, as a means of increasing our attachment to the God who makes and keeps his promises. It's a life of growing in faith, growing, 
maturing, strengthening our spiritual muscles, growing up. And finally, it's a life of faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. For us today, that's what it is. It's, it's a life of faith in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But the words, it was counted to him, verse 23, were not written for his sake alone, for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Same God, the God of Abraham. Same promise, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. One who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Christ fulfilled the law for us so that we could be free from the wrath of God. He bore God's wrath for us. He is our wrath absorber. Abraham's faith was in God who gave him the promise of descendants, yes, but of one in particular. And our faith is in that descendant and what he achieved for us all. Pretty cool, huh? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ways that it speaks into our lives. Thank you for the life of Abraham. Thank you for faith, for righteousness that is the, the result of faith and not works, and not, not the result of religion, and, and, and not the result of anything we can achieve, but only what you can achieve, so that, Lord, we know that we're way out of our depth when we come to our relationship with you. But somehow you have chosen to love us and you've called us to yourself. And I pray this morning for those who may be here who are um, wrestling with the question of faith. And um, Lord, I pray that you would give them insight, that you would grant to them the gift of faith that opens their eyes and opens their heart and mind and the gift of faith that leads to life eternal. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.